but it was already obvious then that there was no way I was leaving because the friendships and the, the, the strength of the friendships that I have made over there, I could not imagine living my life without these people. On this episode of the NSP, I get to catch up with a friend and learn more about her life and times. Mary-Claude Arguin grew up in small-town Quebec and through an interesting twist, found herself joining the Canadian military. Despite having no intention of staying in the forces, she thrived and served 23 years in the Army, rapidly rising to the rank of Colonel. In 2013, her hometown of Lac-Megantic was devastated by a train accident, and she left a promising military career to find a way to help. She found that way by becoming the Deputy City Manager and the lead for emergency management. After five years of work to put the town on the road to recovery, she decided to find another way to serve and join the leadership of Queen's University, where she is now the CIO. Thanks for taking the time to listen to the Northern Sentinels podcast, and I hope you enjoy my conversation with Mary Claude Arguin. MC. Great to have you on the podcast today, and thank you for inviting me into your uh, into your home here in Kingston. Yeah, my my pleasure. It's actually funny to have you here after all these years. It's true, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, it's. Uh, I think that's one of the real powers of the shared experience of the the military is you can pick up where you left off, and uh, and you really haven't missed much uh, much of a beat uh, between yeah. uh, in your friendship. So. Why don't we start off and then talk a little bit about where you're from, where your parents are from. Uh, and, and I think it's really meaningful for you because of how central Lac Megantic was in your childhood, but also in your, your professional life in the future. Yeah, absolutely. So, so yeah, so we'll see through this discussion that, you know, uh, most of my childhood was spent in, in Lac Megantic, but actually I've spent my childhood in, in two different places. Um, my parents and their entire family uh, are from Lac Megantic, uh, and they've always had a place over there. Now, because of their professions, my parents literally moved um, about an hour away from Lac Megantic. So I was the type of kid that during the week lived in a small village about away, one hour away from Lac Megantic to go to school. And then every Friday afternoon, we would pack our bags and then go to Lac Megantic. So most of my social friendships, um, part of their life happened in Lac Megantic. And then eventually my, when my parents retired, they fully moved there and it became my home, kind of like my, my, my home um, when I was not at military college and, and then when I left home, essentially. So yeah. So Lac Megantic became very important to me. This is where I've got the most fun memories of, of my childhood, living by the lake with all of the friends. Um, and yeah, uh, it's, it's, it all started there. How, how did, your, did your parents know each other growing up? Like how did they, how did they meet? That's a very good question. Like I should ask you, I should ask them that. How do they meet? Like, how come I don't know that? That's really bizarre. Like, I know obviously they knew each other, right? Like uh, for everybody that will listen to this that do know like Megantic, at the end of the day, it's it's a very small city, right? Uh, everybody know each other. And I would assume that back in the days, uh, even more, right? Um, so they definitely knew each other. Uh, my both sets of grandparents were business owners. 
So by default, I won't go as to say that they were like competitors kind of thing, but you know, (laughs) (laughs) but they, they obviously as, as business owners, they, they knew each other. And then my parents being the same age range, obviously through the schooling system and everything, they, they knew each other. Uh, but I, I know for sure it's not like they were like childhood friends from a very young age. I believe that they met more like in their teenage years kind of thing. What did your, what did your parents do for work? Uh, did, did they, cause you said that they worked outside of Lac Megantic <clears throat> and then you went back. So, uh, how did they, uh, get to their sort of professional lives? What were they doing as uh, yeah, adults? I, th- I think essentially it's, um, education that took them away from, from Lac Megantic. There were no, uh, educational institutions for higher education, obviously in Lac Megantic, as it is the case in, in, in most small cities, right? You have to go to the city to go to school. Um, my dad was a certified accountant, um, so he went to school in Quebec City at the university. Okay. Uh, and my mother, um, which was a bit unusual in her generation, but um, she studied uh, to become a medical technical lab uh, assistant. Um, so they, which she studied also in Quebec city. So they continued their relationship while they were over there. And when they both graduated, um, dad landed his first job, uh, somewhere in, in Montreal. I think it was for hydro Quebec at the time. So they lived, uh, before I was born in Montreal city, uh, where they started their career. And then obviously they knew that they, I think really from there, they, they realized that you know, this was only to start their career, that they were not necessarily big city people uh, and they were missing home. So they looked for opportunities to go back. Uh, and then this is the closest to Lac Megantic that it was. It was this hospital in um, in a village called or a small city called Saint Ferdinand. Uh, that that's the place where, you know, like I said, I grew up like on a weekly, <laughs> on a weekdays kind of right. thing, uh, where my dad was the um, finance director for the hospital. And my, my mom ended up being the lead, uh, leading the medical lab at that hospital. Was it common when they were growing up to, uh, in a small, in small town, Quebec to, to seek higher education or were they unique in that way? Uh, I think it was not necessarily unique uh, for the men. So I think it was not unusual to see the men leaving to seek higher education. It was certainly unusual for my mother um, to to seek uh, that sort of education level. Uh, And it became really obvious or challenging, I can say, because it was having a professional career was super important to her. Um, And as we've discussed, you and I a little bit in the past, it was even my grandmother. So my mother's mother um, was something that was important to her too. And in our generation was even more unique or more rare or to a certain point, almost unacceptable. Right. Mm. Um, But anyway, back to my mom, Um, that was a conscious choice. That's what she wanted. But society in the Quebec society was not uh, designed or, you know, organized for that. So there was no maternity leave then. There was no, you know, so she, I'm really proud of my mother. And I think this is what kind of like pushed me to also seek higher education, uh, maybe even in the domain that is not really too familiar or too popular for women at the time. Because I, I honestly believe that this is kind of like what my mother went through in a different way as well. When you were young, did you uh, did you see that aspect of uh, of your mom and even your grandmother as something to to model, or is that something you saw 
maybe as you got older, them as role models in that way? I don't, I'm, I'm going to say older. Maybe I was too naive or too, like my mom was a superstar, like handling it all, like really like being, being a mother and being a professional. And so it never really, I never noticed because no doubt now at my age, now that I am a mother, now that I have a career, no doubt she must have been struggling. It must have been like so challenging to do it all. Um, and especially today, like I find it challenging, but it is just normal business for the the fathers or husbands, you know, to just like participate in all the house chores and raising our children, which was not really necessarily the case. Uh, so, you know, it was still my mother doing all of the cooking and doing all of the house stuff while my, my dad had his professional career, but my mom too had that career. So I just, to me, was just normal. So I don't think he was a model model to right. say. It was just a normal way that it was in my family. And I only, you know, when I became a, a professional adult that I, it occurred to me that my mom was a superstar for doing all of that without showing any signs of, of, of being challenged. What were you like as a kid? How'd you spend your time? Were you, were you an academic? Were you an athlete? Were you a, a uh, troublemaker? What, yeah. What? Um, I'm, I was tempted to say all of the above, but certainly not an athlete. Um, I challenged with my weight uh, from a very, very young age. So I, let's just say I was a big kid. Uh, so how was, I was as a kid, uh, very timid, very shy. Um, was I bullied? I don't know. We were not using those words in mm. the days, uh, but it was certainly... Let's just, if we take myself to elementary school type thing, yeah, it was challenging as a big kid, big female kid, you know, always the last one picked on the, on the teams and during your know, recess and things like this. I still had several good friends, uh, where I grew up, but yeah, so I was more timid, more shy, um, because of that challenge, maybe associated with, with my weight, um, and then, uh, again, thanks to my parents who still today never realized that then, um, picture myself in the future and the struggle. So they could see the struggles that I had at a young age and they realized that they, it was their job as parents to try to do whatever they took to make sure that I would not carry that, that burden, uh, through my entire life kind of thing. So, um, here we went on adventure to try to find a professional, doctor, nutritionist, whatever they called them then to see if they could. And it was really, really hard. And I, I must have been about 10, 11 years old at the time. Um, and again, back in the days, same as today, when we compare, it was just not, um, today you can go online, you find diets, you find whatever, right? It's everywhere. Everywhere, right? Yeah. Then for a doctor to professionally follow a kid, like many of many of the doctors that my parents met did not want to follow me. They, mm. they, it was just not there. There, it was just not normal, right? And if we, we found that that one nutritionist that was in Sherbrooke City, so it was an hour and a half driving for three years. Every Friday after work, my dad got me in a car. We drove an hour and a half to Sherbrooke to saw that doctor, and then you know she. You know, followed me. She coached me. She educated me on exercising, on proper food. At the same time, educated my dad. Mm. Um, and then we did that for three years. And again, it's only as if 
parents. And as an adult, I'm like, oh my God, all I want to do on Friday after a hard week at work, all I want to do is sit on the couch and then, I don't know, pop a beer open and just relax, right? But right. here, my dad did all of those sacrifices. So it was three years of of being doing this challenging things. It was really, really hard. You know, the yo-yo thing, you lose weight, gain weight, lose weight, gain weight. And finally, after three years, reached my goal. And this was beginning of high school kind of thing. And this is when I became a troublemaker. (laughs) (laughs) So I went from very timid, very, you know, uh, to then finally being able to live the life that I wanted to finally, weirdly enough, people wanting to be my friends, you know, which is kind of sad when you think of it, right? right? But it's just reality. Uh, And uh, then starting having a very intense, heavy social life. So to me, high school was completely different, 180 degrees from, well, the second part of high school, I should say, 180 degrees from elementary school. And then, yeah, then it, then I may have became a bit of a troublemaker, which might be how I ended up in the military. I was going to say, how does the, how does the troublemaker uh, end up deciding that, that she's going to, to join the, the army? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> Yeah, by doing silly things, I guess, because there, there was, um, we did not know anything about the army in my family. We did not know anything about the Canadian forces. I uh, may have a couple of uncles that I've served a few years back in the days in LAR, um, but it's not something that we would discuss or that I was necessarily interested in. So, um, like, I did not even know that they were different elements. I didn't know of Air Force, Navy, and Army. That just gave you an idea of how little we knew about the Canadian forces. So you were a regular Canadian family then? <laughs> yeah, I, I, yeah probably. I think, that's, yeah, I think that's the case probably, for most families. Right? And honestly, I knew nothing of it until the recruiting center came to do their, you know, regular, you know, pony show, I guess I can call it, mm. in, in high schools to show us what it was all about, trying to recruit kids to join either the, the, the regular force, the, the Regular or reserve. Uh, and then, long story short, they came on a Friday, and then obviously they show us all of the videos. You know, typically they show us, like, the, the obstacle courses in the mud, anything typical of a recruit camp, and then, you know, all of the stuff that, that you can imagine they show. Um, and because by then, right, total opposite. I went from being a heavy, big kid to then in, you know, in secondaire 5, so what, grade 11-ish, being 90 pounds soaking wet, right? Because then I had a taste of, of sports. I had a taste of exercising. I knew how to eat well. So I was not yet an athlete, but I was much fitter than I was. But yet I had like no muscle mass. I was tiny, tiny. Um, so people started like respectfully kind of like joking around and saying, Hey, you know, MC, this, this seems like something for you, but obviously as a joke, because I was the tiniest of the classroom kind of thing. Right. Um, Anyway, and then there was the school dance that one Friday night. And then I won't go into the details, but we just did silly things at what grade 11 silly kids did back in the days. Um, And then we ended up having a bet. And then whoever lost the bet had to go and do one of those boot camp that we saw during the day. (laughs) And I lost the bet. (laughs) That's a a severe consequence of losing a bet you need to enroll in the military (laughs) yeah let's just say again city right we never really taught much further than the first step of that whole thing you know but do you get a sense that people were actually serious i mean oh no i mean i actually started it went from 
it went quickly from me playing a game with my friends. Like I, we knew deep down, right, that this was a joke, that this was not right. serious. But then I saw it as an opportunity to scare the heck out of my friends to basically say, y'all, I'm a woman of my word. And then there you go. I'm going to recruiting center. I hope I survive. If I don't, I will be on you kind of thing. Right. Right. And they're like, no, no, that's a joke. You don't have to do this. And then I just, no, no. And I wanted, this is where I say a bit of a troublemaker. I had no intention at all of joining the forces, but I wanted to go far enough in the process to truly scare my friends, Hmm. like to truly like (laughs) put this back on them kind of thing. But then through the process, you get information, you get the pamphlets, you get to talk to the, the, the right person at the recruiting center, because obviously they just don't, it's not like you, you do a, an Amazon online order, right? It's not like you just call them, give your name and there you go, you're registered. So, you know, they make an appointment. So anyway, all this to say that in order for me to make it as far as possible in the process, I actually had to have a few discussion with people at a recruiting center and they had to send me in the mail informations and things like that, where when I started reading it, it's like, okay, wait a minute, there might actually be something here. Uh, but again, never long-term, no mm. intention for any long-term. It was more at the time, maybe in relation to the the challenges surrounding my weight when I was younger, the fact that I have surpassed that challenge and I have like achieved objective. I got a taste of how it feels to be successful in achieving difficult things And I saw it as, you know, this is no longer a bet for my friends. This is no longer a dare thing. This is like, I think, uh, I dare myself to try to survive that boot camp kind of thing. So then I had to talk to my parents about it. (laughs) (laughs) I assume this probably caught them completely by surprise. Absolutely. Because I've got only one sibling. I've got an older brother. And then um, when I say that I was like 5'2", 90 pounds soaking wet in high school, my brother was six foot tall and 185 pounds probably, right? They always assumed that my brother would become a firefighter or a policeman or, you know, maybe something like joining the forces. Uh, And they always assumed that because I was like, fairly strong academically and small that I would become, I don't know, a lawyer, a doctor, an engineer or whatever, Hmm. a teacher. So it was, it really took them by surprise because they never saw that coming. And again, typical Canadian family, their first reaction was like, on the way, you know, like, why would you want to do that? Why would you want to do this? Why would we as parent want you to do this? And then quite honestly, it, I don't think they believed that I could do it. They saw my brother being capable physically of doing it, mentally of doing it. I don't think they, even though they loved me to death, I don't think they honestly saw and believed that I could do it. So their first reaction was to kind of like steer me away from that crazy idea. But yeah, but then they too started reading the pamphlet and then they, they too started talking to people and then they, they started to shift from something very scary for their daughters to something, to a great opportunity to have a a high reputable career, um, to have a good education. Uh, and then what was super important again, that people coming from large cities may not realize this, but from Lac Megantic and St. Ferdinand speaking English is then was, you know, unique. Hmm. So the one thing that really caught their attention on that recruiting material was, was, you know, we're coming out of there with a bachelor degree and bilingual. So to my parents, I was like, okay, she's going to have a university degree and she's going to be bilingual. She's going to be at 
that's setting her up for success. So this is really when they started asking more questions and really asking the, the sergeant at the recruiting center mm. kind of thing, like, do you really believe like a tiny thing like her like can, can survive and do this? And anyway, they must have said yes, because they eventually signed the paperwork. <laughs> and what was your first unit or what was the first thing you did after you'd been enrolled in the, in the military? Where did you go? But before I was actually like, I mean, once I was in or before. Yeah, once you were in. So you got enrolled. Yeah, I got enrolled. So then I started like running and doing push ups and trying to get ready for the PT test kind of thing mm -hmm. that I was told was coming at recruitment, um, which was really unusual. I started to try to get as fit as I could. Um, and then, yeah, and then we went in the, the CMR, Collège Militaire Royal de Saint Jean. So I was a bit of a shock. <laughs> and. I think it's probably a shock for most uh, for most recruits because uh, it is such a uh, such a dramatic change in a whole bunch of ways, right? So you're leaving home. Uh, it's a civ civilian to a military transition. You're starting university. Uh, there's a whole bunch of things there. So what was that sort of first experience at CMR like? Yeah, like total shock. Again, knew nothing about the military. The experience then might be different than it is today, but I remember there were certainly a lot of yelling. Um, <laughs> Um, so it's, it's kind of get, get in survival mode right away, but we're all, we're all in the same, right? And then we were by then regroup, uh, in, in our rooms of four. So I was with three other, you know, ladies, um, one of them speaking French and the other two speaking English. So to this day, I still sometimes joke about it, but I am, there's some seriousness in all this. I still believe to this day that one of the factors that made me survive that first boot camp at CMR might be because half of it, I never understood what was going on around me <laughs> because it was like two weeks French, two weeks in English, two weeks French, two weeks in English. Uh, and then honest, honestly, the English weeks, I did not speak a single word of English, not one. So it was just a question for me to, I was following people were turning left. I was turning left people were going to building a, I was going to building a, somebody was yelling in my face because I was doing something wrong. Well, all I heard was wah, 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 wah. <laughs> I, nothing was insulting. Nothing was affecting me. Um, but then, oh my God, did I ever learn English quickly? And I made the best friends ever. My best friend today, still, um, one of that, the, my first roommates that I got, uh, in the first couple of years at CMR. And how we became such good friends is she couldn't speak French and I couldn't speak English. So we had to find ways of, of, of truly connecting, right, before the language. At what point when, uh, when you were at CMR did you, you think, you know what, actually, I, I really like this and I'm, I'm kind of, this is working out. Uh, yeah, um, I'm going to say after recruit camp, after boot camp, but I, I'll correct you a little bit. It was not, I like this because that was not enjoyable. <laughs> You know, we tend to forget, but I, I, I yeah, I. Poor choice of words. Poor choice of words. <laughs> However, it became obvious to me that that intent, that personal challenge that I had given myself, okay, I'm signing up just to see if I can survive that boot camp to, to show myself that I can do it. And then my intentions was hundred percent to go back to, you know, to city street and then to go back and pursue my regular academic, um, career there. Uh, again, when you're young, sometimes you, you learn with life. I did not read the fine prints that you can actually not leave after recruit camp. 
<laughs> you have to at least complete your first academic semester. So I'm like, okay, uh, I'll do that. It's not too long, right? After recruit camp, maybe it was October 1st or, you know, early October. I just needed to survive and continue until until Christmas. But but then that was it. Again, it might not be I love this life. I love this because it was still hard as a prep year. But it was already obvious then that there was no way I was leaving because the friendships and the, the, the strength of the friendships that I have made over there, I could not imagine living my life without these people that I just met over the past four, five, six months. Uh, it, I think, and then, not I think, you can tell it's all designed that way. Like, I mean, the, the challenges that we had to do to, to survive that boot camp was like, you could not, you cannot achieve those challenges on your own. They were built. So you had to find a way to work as a team to actually surpass those things. And, um, and it just created those bonds that still to this day, um, like you said, we haven't seen each other in several years and here we are years after. And it's just like, we never left off. So same thing. So yeah, to answer your questions very quickly, at, right after boot camp and right after the first semester, I knew I just couldn't leave. I knew just, you know, took it one year at a time. And you graduated from uh, Royal Military College in, in 96. And, and how was that five-year experience in the military college system for you? It was, it was like very good, very positive. Like in anything, there are highs and lows, right? Um, certainly serving as a woman back in, in those days was... Um, at times challenging, uh, at military college, I'd say not really, um, in the sense that quite honestly, I think they were really far forward thinking. I think that compared to many other cultures and nations, uh, the system was already very well designed. I never really at military college felt that as a woman, my place was not there. I have to admit, and we're talking 25, 30 years ago. Uh, it's more in the summers when we would go to do the military training or, or when I graduated in 96, when I actually ended up in the, let's call it the real army, where I realized that, okay, back then in 1996, the army might not have been fully ready as it is today uh, to, to welcome women uh, then. But the military experience, military college experience, I've done Saint-Jean, I've done RMC, and I had the luxury or the pleasure of doing four months in railroads as well, because... Um, I had to kind of like pick up English. So they sent me there in full immersion, best four months of my life still to date. Yeah, <laughs> yeah no, it's uh, yeah. Royal Roads was, was a, a really a special place on, on Vancouver Island. Uh, so when you finished your, you finished military college and you finished your training after military college, what was your first posting in the army? Uh, yeah, so I was, the first short one was an OGT, it was in Chilliwack, BC. So, uh, because in an OGT, maybe I won't talk about this one, but my real first posting was in one brigade at the time was still in Calgary okay. at one SIGS in, in, in one brigade. Um, and, uh, there were two of us from our phase four that were posted to, to one SIGS. Um, there was this colleague of mine. Uh, a man, Anil, his name was, and myself. And by the time we arrived at one brigade, uh, then it was the, um, the, the Winnipeg floods. Um, and the entire brigade, practically, or at least the entire 1-6 unit, was deployed uh, in Winnipeg. So we arrived to an empty unit 
And then we arrived essentially with a, a note on our on our residence door uh, by the MP saying, if you are like MC Arguin, show up to the MP shack. <laughs> so that was a bit scary. <laughs> You know, in hindsight, they could have left a few more details. It would have been less concerning, but still. Um, so we ended up there and it was essentially just to say, listen, like, don't unpack. Uh, you need to get in. Like, you've got transportation. Your unit is completely deployed to Winnipeg on domestic operation. And then uh, they're waiting for you kind of thing. It's like, okay, like, talk about, like, right into it. So two days later, later found myself uh, in Winnipeg in, you know, in the middle of a domestic operation as a brand new sparkling new green second lieutenant who had no idea what I was supposed to do over there. Sparkling new. I, li- I like that. Yeah. Uh, was that, was that a good way to start for you right on to a, a domestic operation? Or? I could have been, but it, I have to say that it turned out to be a bit challenging. It was a very good way for me to start because what better way to be right into the real stuff, right? Um, no theory, no training, right there with the population. You could, literally see the good that we were doing. You could see how appreciative the community around us were. They needed our help and we were there. So that was an amazing experience that way. The less amazing, the less positive experience was, as I was mentioned back then, it may, the army might not have been totally prepared for, for women. In some areas it was perfect, but let's just say that I won't mention any name here, but the commanding officer that was there at the time um, was part of the group that was probably not well prepared or well not accepting of. So I did not necessarily feel as welcome as my friend Anil was welcome. Let's just put it this way. Now, I have to say, I'm, I'm talking about one person here and maybe a couple more that were following his lead uh, in terms of unit in terms of the soldiers in that unit, they were very welcoming. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, it probably was uh, was even more stark because you could you could compare it to Anil directly. Yeah. You both come in at the same time, both class same same class, and you can see the difference. And how did you how did you react to that as a young officer? Uh how did I react to this? In total shock. And, you know, again, in hindsight today at my age, with my experience, I was like, why was I shocked? Like, there were like, by the time we, I don't know, in CMR, when we recruited, when we joined, there might have been seven, eight percent of us going in back then. And then at graduation, maybe two, three percent. Right. So I should not have been shocked at this, that I was a true minority in a man's world, and therefore it comes with those sort of things. But my experience at CMR, RMC, and railroads was completely different. I never felt different than my male colleagues. I never felt unwelcome at any of those three military colleges, even back in those days. There were challenges, don't get me wrong, but I never felt unwelcome and I never felt unsupportive. Um, so I was, I was shocked and I honestly did not know how to react and I just did not fight it. I just, I don't think I accepted it, but I just went with it. I thought that this was, I had to do, like, I wanted to do Nijmegen. There was a place to lead the team for Nijmegen. I gave my name and my CEO's answer was like, like, I'm going to put a woman officer, a female officer on my Nijmegen team. 
no. Like several years after, I'm like, I should have said, excuse me? Like, mm-hmm. let me demonstrate to you. Let me show you that I can do it. Right. But as opposed, I was just like, okay, fine. So it's just lack of experience, um, being scared maybe. Um, so I grew, I grew with that over the years. I think for, um, for any of the listeners who haven't been in, in the army, um, and, you know, MC's trade as a signals officer, she started off in a signals unit, but then she ends up being the subject matter expert in other units that are mm-hmm. not signals units. So what was your first unit that you went to, um, that was not a signals unit? Yeah. One combat engineer regiment in Edmonton. Um, when you were there, when I was there, when yeah. you were there, <laughs> uh, amazing experience. Amazing experience. Now, again, I, I'm still fairly junior. Um, I'm a very young captain at the time. Um, I have a few years behind me already, though I'm not considered senior and super experienced yet. Uh, but I'm starting to build my network, right? So I have started to show people around me that I might be small, I might be a woman, I might be French, uh, speaking French mainly, uh, but I, I can do it. And I, by that time, by the time I got to one CR, I felt well supported by the people around me. Um, but nevertheless, um, I knew that I would have to prove myself again because this was a completely different group. I kind of had built my reputation in a signals world. I kind of had built my reputation in that unit. And though it was not perfect, I knew that uh, the doubts, the people that were still doubting maybe because of, you know, being French-speaking, woman, officer kind of thing, were the minority. Um, I knew that then going into a combat arms um, environment would be, would be quite different. Uh, so I was ready to prove myself again, but thankfully I was really well supported by people like you and uh, many other good friends that, that were there. And wow, Colonel Winnick was the CEO at the time. Right. Yeah. What a difference experience. I could have not been more welcome. I could have not been, you know, felt more part of the team. Um, so I went in quite scared. It was scary for me to, after what I had lived or experienced in the previous couple of years, to then having to start all over to prove myself again, but in a combat arms environment. Uh, it only took a couple of days or a couple of meetings with Colonel Winnick to realize that this was going to be a completely different experience. Uh, he treated me as a specialist. Uh, well, first of all, he treated me as, as equally as he treated you, probably. Mm-hmm. Right. As a member of the regiment, uh, same as all others, same as equally as all of the other officers. But then most importantly, he treated me as a specialist, as a signals officer. And I felt important under his command. Felt valued. I felt totally valued. Yeah. I hadn't really, um, I don't know if we talked about this before, but what was it like as a, as a Quebecer living in Edmonton? Was that, <laughs> I mean, because I can only imagine having, you know, having done a little bit of time in, in Quebec on language training. And I mean, my, my brain just throbbed at the end of the day, speaking in my second language. But now, but I, yeah. I had the ability to leave after a couple of months. I mean, you're now there for years. And, you know, there's obviously cultural differences between Quebec and Alberta. I mean, how, how was that, um, that factor? 
Yeah, the the culture was actually super fun for me. Uh, I actually totally immersed myself into the Alberta culture, uh, the Edmonton culture. I learned how to two-step, you know. <laughs> it was like, <laughs> it became a habit to actually plug my car in the parking lot in the morning because it was minus 56 in the winter. But I uh, know culture-wise, uh, again, Outside the military, for example, when I would go shopping or when I would socialize, when I would meet people, um, I felt super welcome. If anything, my accent was actually kind of like made people curious and then it actually helped me meet people, right? Because okay. they're like, oh, yeah. okay, you got a funny, you speak funny. You bit know? of an icebreaker. Yeah, a bit of an icebreaker, yeah, okay. right? So that, that was good. In terms of the language working, no, that was a different story. Um, Again, I had gone through RMC, done the, the language training, had done an OJT in, in Chilliwack, had done a couple years in, in Calgary with one brigade. So my English was better. But then, yeah, when you realize that it's day-to-day, you know, leading units in, in English, it was different. So I knew enough of, you know, surviving every day. I knew enough of... of being okay, being good at what I was doing. But then years after, I found out that people were actually keeping little notebooks of the funny things that I was saying. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. I, Expressions. I, I, apparently, I, I Apparently, I was famous for inventing English words where I honestly, 100% genuinely thought that they were real English words. But um, yeah. <laughs> so you would be no different than any Anglophone learning <laughs> French and... Yeah. Yeah. You just throw a French word and try to pronounce it in English and hope it exists right. in a dictionary. Yeah. 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 I, was, I was the king of the faux ami in French where <laughs> the, the prof would go, that's not a word. Like, okay, perfect. Good. Yeah, yeah. I'll get one right eventually. Mm-hmm. Um, now, your, your first overseas deployment was, uh, was around this time as well, yeah. out, of, out of one CER. Can you give us a bit of a sense of, uh, of where, well, give us a sense of where you went and, and what that was like? Yeah. Uh, so that deployment was in Kosovo, uh, Roto Zero. Um, and, but I did not deploy with one CR. So I deployed out of one CER, um, but I went to work for, for the NATO headquarter that was a center, or the multinational headquarter that was in charge of, of that operation. At the time, uh, it was there was five five multinational brigades. Uh, one of them, one CR, was deployed into, and then I worked at the multinational headquarters, which was led at the time by the British. Uh, so I went there as a signals officer uh, to support essentially the the headquarters, multinational headquarter. Um, it was again my first, so I had a bit of an experience with that domestic operation in Winnipeg. Um, so it was not completely new, but then arriving into an international operation where, as a rotation zero, quite honestly, un- un- unfortunately, conflicts were not yet over, um, was a bit of an eye opener. Um, first thing, so you realize, okay, now this is we're talking business here. We're we're serious. Like all that training is. You need to put that into action, right? Actually, lives are actually uh, at stake at stake here. So that was the first the first reaction. Um, a bit of a clash of the culture. This is where it actually made me appreciate Canada or the Canadian forces much better because 
even though I spoke about a few challenges about, you know, women in the military in the beginning of my career, it became very obvious to me that despite those challenges, we were far, far advanced compared to many other nations that were serving in that operations. Um, now, again, I, I have to say I never felt unwelcome or anything. People were really respectful. It was, they were just really honest. Like, I had generals from other nations that would literally come to me and say, oh, you're an officer. I didn't realize that, right? In our country, this is not allowed kind of thing. Like literally, right. they were like really, they were not, curious. they were curious. They yeah. were not lacking respect. Um, for example, and one anecdote, and then come to think about the operations that we have today, this seems almost unreal, but uh, again, we're talking in the 90s still. Uh, there was one operations within that large operations that, that happened and that one of the multinational brigade had to do, that was a success. So there was a Italian general at the time that was working in the, in the headquarters in that command post that night. And he wanted to celebrate the successful operation. <laughs> so everybody that was working in the command post, there was probably about 20 of us at the time, 20 to 30. And he made us all lined up. Uh, I was the only female. And he literally like uh, got the liquor out. I don't know. I'm going to say it was vodka. I don't remember what it was, but hard liquor. And it literally like gave a shot to everybody to, you know, do a toast and then celebrate the successful operation. But he passed me. So he gave a shot to everybody in the lineup and then he passed me and he, you know, I did. And I, I remember it's like general so-and-so, like you forgot me. And again, total respect. Like it was just like, Oh, you drink. Right. It was like, and then he was like, and I remember him saying, oh, Maria, I am so happy <laughs> to know that you're, you know, but it was, it's just bizarre. Right. So it just made me realize that culture wise, it made me realize a difference, difference in the culture. Not that I didn't know, but then I lived it really. Uh, and I saw what I appreciated the most of Canada and where we had things still to learn or where, where we were kind of like further ahead of others. So that was a super good experience. But then talk about family and the, my, one of my fondest memories still to this day is, as I mentioned, I did not deploy as part of 1CR. It was a rotation zero. So we were not living like in hard accommodations. We were still like living in intense um, on, on campus, uh, not on campus, sorry, on, on, on the field. Um, and one day after a hard shift at the command post, I go back to my tent, you know, where you have your cot and that's pretty much it. And beside my cot, there's like this wood shelving, kind of like a, you know, temporary dresser, if I can call it. And I was like, what is this? And I looked around and I'm the only cut that has one of those things. So I was like, this is bizarre. Like, is somebody playing a prank on me? But at the same time, I was so happy to have a dresser. Like, but I was kind of like, you know, torn. I was like, do I say something? Like, anyway, long story short, I started like looking closer and there was a note in the, on the, one of the shelf and it was an anonymous note. And to this day, 
years, years, years after, I still don't know. It was a note saying, um, hey, Captain Arguin, uh, we found out that you are on this, um, on this camp and then we had to come here uh, to do something. Uh, so we thought we would leave a gift behind for you. So it, it was actually soldiers from one CER that found out that I was on this camp uh, and then they took it upon themselves to actually build me this like temporary wood dresser for me. So to me, that was kind of like the, I don't know, I still almost get teary just to talk about this today because I don't know who it is, hmm. but it just showed to me, it was a proof of success, a real proof of success that despite all of those hardships, despite people maybe not accepting the fact that, you know, a woman is like the soldiers are the ones that truly count. And those soldiers are the one that literally like respected me enough or liked me enough, I guess, to give me that amazing gift that literally for the next six months truly changed my life where I could keep everything dry, you know, and yeah. it was, that was amazing. So before you, uh, you did an international deployment, um, and what was your, what was your view of, you know, of being in the military in terms of service, uh, you know, serving the nation? And did that change at all when you were in that international environment? No, I think it, uh, I think it reemphasized the importance of it. Uh, part of my job when I was in Kosovo, for example, were to um, be kind of like the armed escort to teams uh, from either Médecins Sans Frontières or organization like this that were delivering kind of like survival boxes to civilians that were kind of like still, you know, I don't want to say prisoners, but could not leave their building or could not leave their current housing by fear of being killed. Yeah, no, right? it, was a, it was a dangerous... Dangerous place. Um so we had those civilian organizations like the Red Cross, for example, that were going to deliver and then they, they looked for people. So I, I on multiple occasions, uh, was the, the, their, their guard, I guess I can say. Um, and the places that we've been and then to see the sparkles in the eyes of, of those elderly women that we were delivering those survival boxes or survival kits to, I mean, they were so appreciative. They would literally hug us. And in, in wanting to thank us, they were willing to give us back half the box, right? Oh, this is too much. You know, this is way too much. Like, take half of it and give it to somebody else too kind of thing, right? So it's just, as a young captain it, that had the luxury of growing up in, in a place like Canada, to actually true, see this true misery, this true hardship, this like seeing people who have lost their houses who have lost their loved ones and then to see how appreciative of what we were doing for them which quite honestly to me was like nothing like the box that we were giving them would last in this household here probably a day and a half and this was mm. supposed to last them a full month so if anything this is where it anchored uh, my will of of serving serving society in general serving canada serving you know the world because I saw the good that we were doing. I saw why the hardship, why the hard training, how it's, it was worth it. 
Uh, and I saw it in all other missions that I've done. Same thing when I ended up in Afghanistan, you know, much closer to the end of my career where, you know, I ended up doing work with the schools, you know, delivering, again, delivering supplies to schools so young girls could go. And then to see how, to see how we, that contributed to hopefully uh, educate one generation of young girls so they can start making decisions for themselves. So yeah, no, the serve, serving, unfortunately, like, as you know, I did not join because I had this thirst or this need of serving, but it, it became quickly anchored into me. Uh, and it still today, I'm not in the military. I left in 2014 and I see me working at Queens University right now as serving society, as preparing younger generation to be properly educated so they can lead lead us when we're old and we no longer have teeth in our mouths. How were your parents uh, impacted by your deployments? I mean, Kosovo was dangerous, especially when you were there in the, the initial days. Uh, and then in Afghanistan, I mean, how, how did they they cope or how did they see your your commitment uh, to the forces and then being in dangerous places? Very hard. Uh, again, being a parent today, I finally understand how they probably felt. Um, I don't think my mother slept well a single night the whole time that I was deployed over there. So yeah, uh, at the same time, they asked questions. They asked, there's like, why are you doing this? You don't have to, you can leave, right? That, that was more, they were definitely scared when I was over there, but before leaving, when I was announcing that I was going on operation, they were more um, confused, confused mm. as to why I looked excited to go to Kosovo, why I actually looked excited to go to Afghanistan, right? Uh, they just could not understand why and it's, it's also hard to explain, right? The only thing that I could say, it's kind of like telling my mother, I'm like, well, it's, it's as if you, you studied, you know, to, you worked in a medical lab, you've, everything you've learned. I mean, you did not do this just to get a paycheck at the end of the day. You did this because you're hoping that medical research will advance and will, will have sorts of, some sort of discoveries that will do good for society. That's essentially, that's why you be decided to work in a medical lab. And I said, well, all of the training that I'm doing is also for an objective. And if I just train and just, it, it doesn't make me achieve that objective. So of course the putting our lives in dangers is something that was difficult to understand. And I think unless you serve, you don't really understand, but that was the closest explanation that I could, that I could give to her. I said, I want to do this. It's important that I do this because that's, that's kind of like the end of, that's the result of me training for this. And then, yeah, and then the, the good that we do, the good that we do is. Your, your career in the Army was very successful in, um, in, in all sorts of metrics. I mean, whether it be, uh, you know, and this, is, this is me as a, as a colleague now looking at, you know, how you progressed in rank, um, how well you were respected, the impact you had in the different jobs you did. Uh, but you made a decision uh, in uh, to leave the forces. Uh, and can you 
give us a sense of uh, why you felt compelled to to leave when you had a, a incredibly successful career and dare I say you were you were liking <laughs> your career <laughs> yeah yeah you are totally correct at that time right choice of words <laughs> good <laughs> Chris I I totally yeah back in uh, 2013 I I truly enjoyed my career um I, I was didn't have to prove myself anymore. Uh, I had a good network. Uh, I knew the good that we were doing uh, everywhere we were deploying uh, on the planet. And then, yeah, career-wise, it was going super well. Um, but then um, most people, many people must know that in 2013, uh, there was a train that derailed, a train that was carrying crude oil uh and then that went right through to downtown Lake Megantic and then it derailed and then it ended up like uh, burning uh, the entire downtown uh, of Lake Megantic, killing several, several dozens of people. Uh, so, yeah, so of course there's the, the fear that did I lose family members because my family still, you know, my parents still live over there. I still have very dear friends that live over there, so cousins. Um, so once I was past that, uh, okay, they, they survive, they are okay. Um, then I just started watching the news because that's, I think that's what most Canadians or actually Quebecers at least were doing because it was on all news channels. It was something so big. It was like still to this day, I believe it is the, the largest environmental tragedy that happened on North American soil. Mm. Um, so it's something big. Um, and so I watch, I watch and I cannot explain it. It is most likely this need to serve, like you, you're talking about. I could not explain it, but it just created a void. Uh, it's not like I was crying every day. I was not touched in that way, but, you know, I would watch. I would find this sad. I would, you know, send boxes to the Red Cross of items that they say that they needed, that the population needed. I would, like, contribute financially when they needed to raise money. But for some reason, I never felt satisfied. There was always this one thing. And I, though I was not necessarily voicing it, I think Steve, my husband, noticed. And he's the one who sat down with me and he said, okay, he said, why do you feel this way? Because like, he said, quite honestly, I mean, we've been together all these years and you've never talked about one day moving back to like Megantic, even when you retire. So why this sudden concern or this sudden, I don't know, some sort of em emotions that I could not explain. Uh, and I said, I don't know. I really don't know. I, and I, I remember saying it will pass. I assume with time, I, as with everything else, it would pass. And he said, he's the one who said, I doubt it. I know you enough that I doubt this is going to pass. And this is when he actually said, come here, sit down. I have to admit something to you. And I'm like, uh-oh, what's happening now? <laughs> right. Uh, and he said, listen, it might be a bit embarrassing to say, but he said, we've been together all of these years. Obviously, I know you're serving the Canadian forces. He's at the other end of it, right? Kind of like having to pack everything of two years and like we've moved a family so often. It's, it's, it's unbelievable. So he knows exactly what it was as a military spouse to live with a military member. But he said, there's, I know all of that. But he said, what I don't know is what you truly do when you deploy. He said, I probably should know after all of these years with you, but I've never really asked. But he said, the one thing that the kids and I know is 
every time it blows up somewhere on the planet, you pack your bags, you leave us behind, you go there and you do something. Then you come back until it blows up somewhere else, right? Those were his exact words, actually. And he said, the latest explosion was actually in your hometown. Mm. He said, don't you think you need to pack your bags? Maybe not leave us behind. Maybe this time we'll go with you. And then you go there and you do whatever it is you do when you go over there. And this is when I'm like, but really? Like, you would do this? Like, we would pack the family once again? And then he's like, I can just feel that's what you need to do. So this is what we've done. We've, I put my uh, resignation, I guess. I left the military and then we decided to move to Lac Megantic to, at the time, I had no idea what I was going to go do over there, but I said, I'm going to go help. Right. You didn't have a job. There was nothing lined no, up. No, no. Uh, we did everything backward. I just about gave a stroke to both my parents. Uh, <laughs> I left the military, so a security of job, <laughs> job security, promising career, um, cause I was actually going to go command, uh, that summer before I left, uh, my second command. Uh, so I left, I bought a house uh, in the village right beside Lac Megantic. I had not sold my house in Ottawa just yet, did everything backward. And I had no idea what I was doing. I didn't even have a resume. So my poor parents, um, yeah, thought that it was a weird decision, but were highly appreciative at the same time that for the first time, you know, cause I left home when I was 16 and then I was finally all these years later moving back home to be close to them. So they were also a little bit torn. They were so happy that I was coming back close to them, but they were like very concerned that I was taking a lot of risks, uh, career wise, but it all worked out. So you land in, the family lands in Lac Megantic, you don't have a plan, you don't have a job. So how do you end up getting involved in what were you doing in the recovery effort? Yeah, what I, by the time I actually physically moved, I ended up, uh, I, I had a plan. Uh, it all went very quickly. My first thing really when I actually sent my letter of resignation, um, and I realized, okay, now what? Um, it, it then occurred to me, I'm like, okay, I don't even have a resume. If I'm, if I'm hopeful of finding a job in Civil Street, I probably should start working on drafting a resume. Um, and such a, such a task that would appear mundane and very simple turned out to me anyway to be very challenging. Because all I knew since I was 16 was the military environment. You know, all of my success in my career were associated with military terminology, my biggest success in my army career was to be a commanding officer. Well, it means nothing on civil street. It means nothing on a civilian resume to be a commanding officer. So how do I translate that, for example? So long story short, I decided to uh, seek support from, uh, at the time, the organization called Canada Company. Um, so they could help me um, write a resume that would make sense. That would translate my military experience into civilian terms. Um, and very quickly, um, that person that I was working with was amazing and she knew where I was going and she's like, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to try to do a bit of a job search. And then even if that job doesn't really exist anymore, maybe if we can find something that would appeal to you, we could try to write your resume around that. And she fell into this old post, uh, that the city of Lac Megantic was looking for a deputy city manager, but the, the competition dates were like 
eight months old or six months old. Mm-hmm. Um, but she's like, you know what? When I read that job description, it's you. It's written you all over it. So uh, she's like, would, would it be something that would be of interest? And first of all, my reaction was like, well, it looks super interesting, but there's no way I can apply for this. Like it asks for minimum 10 years of municipal management experience. I've got big zero, et cetera, et cetera, right? She's like, yeah, it doesn't matter. Like we'll work on that later. Like if it, this is of an interest, if it matches your, because she believed it, it matched my military experience. So we wrote the resume around that. And then, uh, and then she suggested that I contact the city to ask about that job. And sure enough, I contacted the mayor uh, that everybody knew at the time because she was on the news. Uh, and I asked about the job. And she's like, well, yeah, we closed the competition. But to be quite honest with you, we haven't found uh, right. what we were, you know, what we were looking for. So she's like, send me a resume. And, and I sent the resume. And within less than 24 hours, I was called in for an interview. And then uh, I went in all stressed out, like... For sure, knowing that I wouldn't get it because, again, I had no municipal management experience. Um, but what they were looking for was, you know, they had a very extremely professional, amazing, strong city manager with tons of experience. They didn't need the municipal management experience. They had that with them already. Right. What they needed was what I had, the emergency management experience, the crisis management experience. Uh, and this is where I came in. So the city manager stayed and then he continued to manage the city uh, because that's what it was really, really good at. Um, and then they brought me in and then kind of like gave me the portion about uh, to lead the crisis management part of it. It was, it was a perfect team, teamwork. Where do you even start with a problem that big? You, you come into a community, you come into your community, your hometown that's been devastated by this, by this accident. Um, how do you even start solving the problem, especially when, you know, you probably know people who've been affected uh, and it's under the national spotlight. There's obviously going to be an investigation. Uh, there's a whole bunch of, this is a complex or a wicked problem as we'd like to, yeah. to say. Uh, to me, it was obvious. It was first and foremost, a people problem. Um, so I did not approach that that challenge differently than I approach any of my previous challenges in the military where I came in and I went in with the assumption that I needed to fully trust the people that were there before me, that they knew what they were talking about and that I needed to listen to their experience. I needed to listen to what they believe went right and what went wrong and what's remaining to do kind of thing. Um, So the team of people that were working at the city of Lake Megan, whether it is the city councillors, the politicians, or whether they were like the uh, public servants working at the city were an amazing group of people. Like, I mean, it was within days, it was obvious that these people like deserve medals. Uh, like we give medals for people to go overseas, right? They were not trained for that sort of thing. It was like surprise, shock imposed onto them. And they did so good in managing the, the very short-term aftermath of that, of, of that tragedy, tragedy. And, um, so then I just, I just started talking to people, talking to the, and then trying to get a lay of the land 
right? And obviously uh, talking a lot with the mayor, talking a lot of the current city manager. How do we share the workload? Where do you need me to boast? It's kind of like that. And I think this is where the soldier's experience come in, right? It's, it's almost like, I mean, it wasn't like this, but you can picture me like walking almost in front of the city manager and the mayor, you know, stand to attention and like, all right, I'm here. Where do you need me the most, right? right? Where do you need me to go? What do you need me to do kind of thing? So uh, after I, you know, that first phase where I got the lay of the land, then it became obvious of, of where I could bring the most value. Uh, and then this is, this is where we ended up doing. And then I ended up doing, working a lot with the uh, governmental instances, uh, both municipal, but most importantly, provincial and federal in order to, because we were at the beginning, we needed to talk those program, compensation program, um, to speak on behalf of the citizen of Lac Megantic, what they need, what the city need, what we don't need, because we did not fit in any box. There were no existing programs. There are, you know, municipal safe, uh, public safety, they have tons of programs. They have several programs that exist, but it's for, I don't know, the typical spring flooding. When it's flood somewhere, here, you know, here are the criterias, you know, we did not fit in any box, you know, was it a public safety responsibility? Because now we're talking about a city being like in crisis. Was it an environmental ministry problem? Because it was literally an environmental tra tragedy. Um, you know, was it a transportation ministry problem? Because it was a train accident and, you know, the, the federal stuff. You know, we could think about at least five or six ministries that were like, okay, that should be their responsibility. And then the reality was all of the above. It was a bit of public safety, a bit of environmental, a bit of transportation, a bit of everything. Um, so that experience of deploying, whether it is domestic or whether it is international, of working with organizations like the Red Cross, the Red Cross was instrumental in uh, getting Lac Megantic back on its feet. So my experience of working with the Red Cross in different environments before became very handy. My experience of negotiating with uh, governmental instances became quite key as well. Um, the fact that I was comfortable to meet with these governmental representatives, um, that I was able to speak their language, um, and at the same time to represent the community, which is what we do in the military, essentially. Mm. Right? When we deploy some, we, we, go, we don't go there for ourselves. We go there for the community that we that we deploy to, and we speak on their behalf and rebuilding on their behalf. So, so it it was. I don't want to say an easy transition, but it seemed like a natural transition. It was not totally foreign. I was just just not in uniform, right? And I didn't have, and I had to learn the civilian way. You know, I would lie if I were to say that my first command post because we had an equivalent of a command post in, in Lac Megantic where we would you know debrief on because it was still like the area is completely closed still it was still under investigation you know it was not decontaminated at the time so it was still the equivalent equivalent of a rotation zero road mm -hmm. of zero really when I arrived in Lac Megantic so so yeah so I think I, I would lie to you if I were to say that my first debriefs that I led might have been a bit too military-like <laughs> yeah. for a civilian group. I had to take it down a notch yeah. <laughs> kind of thing, yeah. right? I think that's we learn and adapt. That's probably a common problem. <laughs> Whenever I hear deputy, 
Uh, so deputy city manager uh, in the military con- context, deputy commanding officer. Yeah. I always have this vision from my own experience, whether in those roles or uh, interacting with people in those roles. They're, they're the purveyors of bad news. Yeah. They're the, they're the people who are handling kind of the, a lot of the messy the messy aspects of the problem. Was that the same thing in, in this role? Well, there were certainly parts of my role that was indeed, yeah, uh, the purveyor of, of very bad news to, to many people. Now, I wouldn't want to give the impression that the mayor and the city manager kind of like, for lack of a better term, dumped that responsibility onto me. They were definitely hands-on leaders. Um, it's just that in in the way that we divided the task, the fact that I became more responsible for the crisis management as opposed to the regular, because the city still runs, right? You still need the regular city management stuff. Um, So by default, it became an important or a significant part of my job to meet with the citizens that lost their housing in in downtown, The, the ones that the government were building the compensation packages for them. I was the one uh, meeting with the citizen to explain to them what that compensation package is. And you can, you can just assume like when you lost everything, you know, there's no compensation that will ever be adequate. Right. Uh, and especially when part of that loss, we're talking about a loved one or a human Mm -hmm. being. Right. Um, so, so yeah, so this was really, really hard, um, to, to, yeah, the, to compose with having to meet with those those citizens that and some I knew, some were some were family, some were uncles and, and, and aunts, right? So it's very very difficult. Uh, I'd like to say that maybe the uh, the resilience that I built over the years with the military was uh, probably helpful, you know, to try to be able to put emotions aside to, you know, um, convey bad news or not say bad news, but any news that you know is probably not going to feel adequate to the person that receives it at the other end. So there was that. But in the grand scheme of thing, um, being city management, when it was, I'm going to call it an at-large announcement, it was still the mayor doing this. So that small lady with so much courage and so much resilience supported by our city council were the ones that at the end of the day were giving the real bad news mm-hmm. at the end of the day. Uh, so they're their heroes, not me. You talk about your own resilience and, and how you learned a lot in the military, became resilient or more resilient in the military. Uh, what are your observations on the the resilience, not necessarily of the lack megantic population, but they're probably going to be a a good sample of Canadian population of community resilience, or, or how how Canadians uh, are or maybe are not prepared to deal with these these things. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's safe to assume that they are a good representation of rest of of, of the country. Um, first of all, I'd say in my first impression that they have. As a as a whole, the community has been extremely resilient. We cannot underestimate the shock and how big this tragedy was 
and will be for many for several years. Never, it, it will take a full generation. Very similar to international operations that we go to. It'll take at least a full generation to maybe not forget, but to, to learn to live with the aftermath. Um, so that population has been extremely resilient. What I learned from it, or it was not necessarily a, a learning experience, but more of a validation of what I've seen in the different places that we've been in the military, or without talking about community, even soldiers ourselves. And please, uh, for anybody that is listening, I am not an expert in, in resilience. I have not done any research on it. But my observation through my military experience and in Lac Megantic is that I do believe that from the get-go, we probably are born with a certain, you know, level of resilience. Some already stronger from the start than others. But then our live experiences is what builds our true resilience. And what I found over there is that you cannot assume that everybody's at the same level. Uh, And then generally, not 100% of the time, but what I've seen, again, both in the military and over there, is that generally it would appear that those who've had maybe a bit more hardship in their lifetime Mm. were the better equipped to deal with that. It's no different than training, I think, or practicing. Like it's it's kind of like, but those that maybe had less hardship in their youth or in their young adulthood, or you know, as an adult or as business owners, uh, it was much harder to to deal with some of those news or with the challenges that came with. Um, so, what does that tell me? It it tells me that that yes, yeah, sometimes I'm concerned that we're doing too much for our kids. <laughs> right are they going to be truly prepared to face the challenges of life um not that you know we should purposely put our our children through hardships but yeah yeah i know this is very simplistic theory around resiliency but yeah you you're born with a certain level from the get-go but then your life experiences really develop your true level of resilience and i you need to adapt when you deal with this when you Every I needed before I met with any of those citizens to give them any type of news, it's almost as if there was a bit of research for me to do, not into deep into their personal lives, but if they were people that I did not know, uh, I needed to kind of like try to ask a few questions before. Do you know these people? What have they been through? What's their history? So I could adapt my way of communicating with them based on what I would expect their resilience would be. Because I've seen it all. I've seen people who just received the news and cried and said, okay, it's hard, but this is what it is. I've seen others that, you know, just broke in front of me that, you know, I was concerned that I needed after that to basically maybe reach out to a family member or a social worker and say, you know, you may want to keep an eye on that person for the next few weeks because I just broke a news to that person that was obviously not well received. Mm -hmm. I've seen others that their reaction was pure anger. You know, anger towards me because I was the one giving the message. So, yeah, resilience is all shapes, forms, and levels, and um, you just need to adapt on how to deal with it. Yeah, I've always always felt... um since joining the, the the military that there's a real value in in doing difficult things and, and seeking challenges that are, are going to be difficult yeah. um and just exactly for the reason that you said uh, so that when 
when you don't choose to do something <laughs> difficult that's thrust upon you, you're far better prepared to handle it. Uh, now, you actually left Lack Megantic and left that, that role as a deputy city manager, and you're now doing what? Yeah, well, I two years after being a deputy manager, then city manager uh, retired, a very well-deserved retirement, I think, after going through this. Um, so I became the city manager uh, for the last three, three and a half years that I was in Lac Megantic. Um, so I kept dealing with, you know, what was remaining of the crisis management, which was not necessarily in crisis anymore, but it was about making sure that those programs that were put together we're going to see the light of the day and we're going to be fully completed to make sure that all citizens will actually receive what they were supposed to receive and that they were set up for success for, you know, reconstruction. Um, and then I had to take upon the, the regular city management part of it. So this is where, you know, thankfully, I was able to observe and shadow that city, experienced city manager for a couple of years before getting in that seat. So it was like the army. You were given two jobs to do. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so yeah, because I did get a deputy. <laughs> again, you were trained for this before taking, the, taking exactly. on two jobs. Uh, again, kind of like I was trained for that too. But yeah, so... Again, did I know when I went to Lac Megantic that I was going to be there for six years only? No, I have to think, because my parents are getting older, right? I have to admit that when I went moved back there, I thought that this was going to be it. This is where I will retire and this is where I will end up, you know, take care of my parents who are getting older. Uh, but this is where, again, I think the all of those years serving in the Canadian forces, serving in the army, I, I did realize, quite honestly, that I was totally, this is where Steve sometimes, my spouse is like, you guys are crazy, right? <laughs> in the sense that we seem fulfilled or satisfied when it is challenging. Mm -hmm. And when it starts to actually, you know, postings are like this. We start a new posting. We're like, oh my God, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a lot to do here. And then we are super busy. And then we do the disposed thing for a couple of years. And, you know, if we're lucky, three. And then we're like, okay, we're finally comfortable in our job. And now, you know, they're not imposing a posting on us. We're almost looking forward to the next posting, the new challenge, right? So it was kind of like the same after six years in Lac Megantic, totally fulfilled, satisfied, nourished by this crisis management, by the go, 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 by where there is adrenaline, where there are challenges. Uh, and then, you know, you can picture like a pendulum where it was like at the beginning, very heavy in crisis, you know, management and very little in municipal management. And then the more, the more, the more we were, you know, decontaminating, rebuilding and everything. So that part of it, that crisis management was less and less. And then, you know, making more place for the municipal management. And then this is when I, I eventually came to the conclusion that I couldn't honestly not picture myself being a city manager for the rest of, of my career. This is not where my passion lie. Mm -hmm. I lie in in yes, emergency and crisis management. But at the end of the day, as you mentioned earlier in the podcast, I was, I did my career in, in the forces as a signals officer. So I, I then started to miss technology as well. Like, you know, that, that part of essentially what I, what I did, where I built my career upon was starting to, to miss, to be missing. 
And yeah, I must have sent some sort of a message to the universe because magically I receive a phone calls from Queen's University when I was honestly not looking for anything. I was just really starting to analyze my career. I'm like, okay, this was great. I can see that, you know, everything is decontaminated. I can see that we're slowly starting to close programs one by one. In a year from now, probably everything's going to be closed. And what's going to be left is, yeah, I'm a city manager of a rural city in Quebec. Is this what I want to do? And then, and then the phone call came. I said no first. No, oh, did you? <laughs> I yeah. did. I said no because the programs were not all closed. I wanted to finish at least as a minimum. It, it, it was obvious to me that I think that I had reached a personal conclusion that I was not going to do this forever. Now, again, it did not mean leaving like me got sick. It meant maybe not being a city manager for that much longer. Uh, but then I would probably look in the region for something else to do. Uh, and, and then, yeah, and then I said, I, I at least need to finish what I came here to do. Uh, and then to me was like a couple programs that needed to, to see, to see the end of the day, uh, to, to be completed, to make sure that everybody got everything that they were supposed to do. And that the city was actually set up for success to continuing the, the construction because it was not fully rebuilt by then. And then, yeah. Uh, so I said, no, I need to finish this. Thanks. But at least it gave me kind of like a reassurance that there's something out there, right? Um, and then a year after, almost a year to the day, they call me back. And they said, all right. Uh, somebody put a calendar reminder on. <laughs> they must, somebody must have put a reminder. Yeah, exactly. And uh, they call me back and they're like, all right, we, we remember the answer you gave us, but now this would be one last opportunity. We're doing one last recruiting uh, campaign and then we really see you in in this one particular role or two roles actually would you want to give it a try and then in that year you know before that I had time to practically close everything and I felt that now I was much closer to finishing the mission that I've been there so and I'm like okay let's let's go and check it out at least and then yeah and it was love at first sight when I went to Queens, it was back talking about my technology career, back in my you know zone of comfort or or, or passion. It was um, back in Kingston, you know, mm-hmm. RMC with the the time in Kingston and in in a posting in signal schools here. So I remember driving across the causeway to go to Queens campus for my interview. It was just like I felt back home, which was bizarre because Lac Megantic was supposed to be my home. Right. And then when I drove across the causeway and, you know, that particular sound that it makes when you drive across, yeah. Arizona, you know, yeah. <laughs> the one that kept you awake all of these years when your room at RMC is right by the water. But anyway, yeah, it was, I remember that reaction. I was like, I'm, I'm back home, which kind of felt weird because it, I almost felt guilty, mm. right? Because my home was supposed to be like Megantic forever. So Lac Megantic became kind of like a mission. It's kind of like I went there to do an operational mission that lasted six years. And that mission was completed and I was coming back home to Kingston uh, to serve a different community, but to serve the higher education community. Hey, Marie, this has been fantastic. I'll, I'll we'll wrap this up with the last question I ask everybody. If you have a recommendation to the listeners that can uh, educate, entertain, or uh or elevate a cause that's, that's important to you? 
Yeah, thanks. That's a very good question, Chris. Um, no hesitation. Um, to me, I would say uh, the Red Cross. Um, I've worked a lot with the Red Cross international, uh, and internationally and domestically during my career in, in the military. But I truly saw how significantly it can change people's lives for the better in Lake Megantic. Um, I will. I cannot even find the words how to on how to positively talk about that organization. If we think of our soldiers as being like, you know, giving up potentially giving up their lives for a cause, it's the same thing. The people working for the Red Cross, certainly the ones that I've worked with, are giving everything they have, sacrifice, time, uh, emotions uh, to this. So yeah most of us every what it's in the fall i think we all go through united way campaigns and sometimes some of us are like yeah we'd like to contribute but we don't really know what please if you don't know like give to the red cross they are especially for rural communities like this that's all they have that's their first before the government comes in the red cross is their kind of like their survival and and there are they're, they're saving lives so that's uh, that's certainly uh, an organization that I will forever contribute and forever hold in my heart. Well, my friend, we've, we've come to the end of the podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time. This has been a lot of fun and uh, really appreciate you being on the Northern Sentinels podcast. Yeah, thank you. My pleasure. And uh, if you can find a way when you edit this to remove the accent and make me sound uh, more English, then please, please do so. Never, <laughs> never in a million years. Thanks for being here, Chris. Thanks. You can find information on the Canadian Military Colleges, the war in Kosovo, the Lac-Megantic disaster, and Marie's Elevate recommendation of supporting the Red Cross in the show notes. Thanks for joining us on the NSP, and goodbye until next time.